Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray and ask that you would send now your Spirit among us to give us a light and an understanding of your Word. Uh, we confess, uh, Father, that we are not able to understand your Word as we really ought to. Uh, we certainly are not able to be convinced of, of our remaining sin and, and to see the glory of the gospel in Christ offered up to us apart from the Spirit's works. So will you please open your word to us, give us understanding, uh, guard me as I, as I proclaim your word, to teach only that which your word testifies as true, and not the doctrines and commandments of men, but truly and only the word of the living Christ. We ask this in his name and for the good of your people. Amen. As you take your seat, if you turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 14, having finished our study through the book of Colossians. I intend to, here in a couple of weeks, do a short series in the Psalms. I usually do a, a handful of Psalms in between books, and then we'll go on to uh, an exposition of the book of Judges. But today and next Lord's Day, I plan to, to address the subject of Christian stewardship. And specifically, I want to, to explore from the scriptures the relationship between our giving and our worship of the triune God. And now I understand that just simply by saying that, some of you are already uncomfortable. I am. Uh, confession, I, I am. And, and for a variety of reasons, that's the case, because many of us have, have had all kinds of just horrific experiences in churches with respect to money and the, the manipulation tactics and all kinds of things that we just don't want to even go there anymore. But for others, it's, it's a matter of conscience. You're uncomfortable because your own conscience is pricked and perhaps accuses you in this area. And... I'm familiar with that as well. I understand those things. And it's interesting, as I've studied for this over the last several weeks, and reading uh, various commentaries and materials, and, and also listening to a number of sermons from men who are Reformed and, and faithful Bible teachers. And here's a theme that I've seen. Throughout all the sermons, every sermon I've listened to began with some of the very same elements. Almost every one of them had an apologetic tone at the outset, as if to say, I'm sorry I'm even talking about this. And at least it's a, they come with a statement as to the infrequency of the subject. To say, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and this is the first time I've ever done this. And, and I could say the same in 12 years. March will be 12 years since we planted the church. I've never preached on, specifically on the subject of Christian giving. Almost all of them begin with an assurance to visitors, hey, this is not normal. This is not what we normally preach about. There's clearly, and all of them, had a, there was a discomfort. You could hear, and, and many of these men I know personally, and, and I, you could hear a discomfort in their voice even talking about the subject. And again, it's understandable because the, the various prosperity scammers just bilk millions of people out of millions of dollars every year, and every one of us could probably tell horror stories of, of greed and financial improprieties and so forth within the church of Jesus Christ. So, as a response, sometimes we, we run the other way and say, I'm just not going to address this subject at all. But is that biblical? 
is that being faithful to the Scriptures to address a subject that the Scriptures actually speak about frequently. Our Lord Jesus spoke about money frequently. So no, it's not the biblical position. There's a second observation. As I've listened to sermons and as I've studied the, the, the topic and just thinking through it, I understand the reluctance of, of faithful pastors to preach on the subject. I, I really understand that. In fact, I needed the very gracious encouragement of some of the brothers within our finance committee to say, you know, you really need to address the topic. We haven't, you haven't preached on this. Okay, fair enough. I'll take up the task. And I've made application from time to time. For example, when we were working through the letter to the Philippian church, there were, there were opportunities to make application with respect to Paul's partnership or the Philippian church's partnership with Paul for the gospel. But I haven't preached exclusively on the matter. And there's a third thing as I've thought about this. And perhaps uh, some of you may think that I have, as, as pastor, already come to settled convictions about every possible theological matter that could be addressed. Well, if you think that, then I, I say, bless your heart. Because there's, there's much that, that I have to study in real time, and as I'm studying, I'm being also conformed to the Word of God. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's exactly what we find. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's saying, I hope to come, but in case I'm delayed, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. And Paul goes on to say to Timothy, that the man of God is actually thoroughly equipped by his study in the Word of God. In his study, in his labor to prepare to preach, the pastor himself is, is smashed upon that am, anvil of God's Word and conformed and shaped. And we're told in that very passage that it's the Word of God that is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Do you know that happens to the pastor first? I promise you, every week. You get, you get just what what's makes it into the sermon. You don't see the editing room floor. But there's another thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. As he exhorts Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching, to preaching, devote yourself, pour yourself into these things. And then he says something that's very remarkable. He says that all may see your progress. That all may see your progress. Now that's a humbling statement because what it implies, before you can see my progress, you also have to have seen my deficiencies and know that I needed to grow. And that's the reality. No matter how long a man has been in ministry, there are opportunities to grow. And I will tell you that for a little over, probably over 20 years now, Gene and I have practiced what I think is the, the ancient pattern of giving a minimum of 10% of our income to our local church. We've, we've practiced that for over 20 years, and yet, as I've studied this over the last several weeks, my, my soul has been encouraged as I've read the Word of God and studied the issue, and particularly to see how that pattern, that ancient pattern, preceded, long preceded the law of God, the Mosaic law. So I plan to preach on the subject this week and next under the following two sermon titles. This week, it's Stewardship and Worship. And next week, it's Stewardship and the Great Commission. And again, as I've studied the subject in the context of the broader evangelical landscape, I've seen pragmatism sort of rule the day. And, and when it comes to finances, it makes sense because it's, it's, it's nuts and bolts. It's X's and O's, right? Pragmatism tends to rule, but it tends to fall out in one of two ways. There's one school of thought that says if we get people involved, to get them plugged in, to get them serving in a church where they invest their time and have a sense of ownership, they'll also give. 
This is a you know, practical approach. And this is, you see this a lot in, in what I call the big box Baptist churches. It, you, it's very program-driven. Get, get them busy, get them involved, and where they're spending their time, they'll also are likely to give. Well, then there's another kind of opposite approach that says, no, you go the other way. You get them to give first by manipulation, by hook or crook, whatever it takes. You guilt them, you, you manipulate, you, you, you appeal to their emotions, whatever it takes to get them to give. But then wherever their treasure is, wherever they're giving, they're more likely to get plugged in and serve. So it's kind of two different approaches, but both of them are just a very pragmatic, practical approach. Both are insufficient. Both strategies fail to consider the broad and deep biblical framework of financial stewardship. Now, you've all heard the question, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You've heard the question. Now, as, as Christians, we can turn to Genesis and, say, and, and answer authoritatively, well, the chicken. Chicken came first. God created a whole complete chicken, and that chicken then reproduced. But we can approach the matter of giving in a very similar way. We can say, which came first? Do we get people plugged in and involved and get them to give? Or do we get people to give, and then they'll get plugged in and involved? Both of those fail to consider, just like the chicken or the egg fails to consider that God came first. Not the chicken, not the egg. When it comes to giving, does God come first? Is God preeminent? Is he the first mover? So no appeal for giving to churches or religious causes can ever be legitimate, can ever, ever, ever be legitimate if we don't begin with God himself. Who is this God that we worship? Who is the God that we serve? What has God done for you and for me? What blessings has God bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus? We have to begin there before we deal with these practical or even pragmatic issues. So we consider, first of all, the relationship between stewardship and worship. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Here's the background. We're going to be popping down in the middle of a story for the sake of time. Beginning in verse 10, here's the background. Five kings had gone to war against four kings. Now, in, in this period in history, kings were not necessarily kings of nation states like we would think. They were kings of cities. So you have kings of five cities go to war against the kings of four cities, and the four got whipped by the five. And of those four that got beaten were Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you may remember Abraham's nephew Lot lived there. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had been defeated, and this ends up in the capture of Abram's nephew Lot, along with his household and all of his possessions. So that's where we are. We're popping right in the middle of the story here. In Genesis chapter 14, hear the word of God. We're going to begin in verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. These are basically asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. 
When Abram heard that his kinsman had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and all brought back his and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now, Melchizedek, and we're going to see it later in the sermon, I'll turn to, to Hebrews chapter 7, but Melchizedek is this mysterious figure who just appears here in the Old Testament. And he is a type of Christ who would come. And he's called here the priest of God Most High. And he is authorized by God to give a blessing to Abraham. Now, Abraham is the patriarch. Abraham is the one on whom God has set his covenant. Two chapters back in Genesis, he says, I will make you a blessing to the nations. From your own loins, a seed will come that will be a blessing to all the nations. Now, it's not often that we have, that we can read an inspired commentary of Scripture. I consult commentaries all the time in preparation to preach. And I might read from John Calvin or John Owen or any number of commentaries. Not one of them is inspired. Every one of them has had points in which they were wrong. But this passage in Genesis chapter 14 actually has an inspired commentary, an infallibly inspired commentary. It's Hebrews chapter 7. The Spirit of God has given us an infallible. And again, we'll turn there here in a little bit. But through the writer to the Hebrews, he teaches us that Melchizedek was both a priest and a king and that he was unique in both respects because he had neither recorded birth or death nor genealogy. And so the Holy Spirit concludes that this was a superior priesthood to Aaron or Levi, and that Christ came from this very same priestly and kingly order. We'll we'll read that in in Hebrews 7. We'll see an infallible commentary on this passage. What we learn from Genesis chapter 14, again, we'll bring in Hebrews 7 as a commentary. What we learn from this is that returning to God a portion of our income is a necessary part of true worship that re-represents a tangible expression of our belief that God is both our creator and the source of all good gifts. Abraham understood this. And I hope as we study this, we'll come to understand the same thing. Returning to God a portion of our income is a necessary part of true worship. If you get nothing else from the sermon, that's it. 
giving and worship have to go together. And, and this giving represents a tangible expression of our belief that God is both our creator and the source of all of our good gifts. Let's notice something, three observations from the text. In the first place, we see that these tangible offerings of thanksgiving to God is a necessary part of worship. After he had returned from defeating Shedder and the other kings, Melchizedek appears. He's called here the king of Salem. Now, king of Salem, that's the city. And you, you, you may recognize the root word. It's, Salem means it's rooted in the, the Hebrew word for shalom or peace, but it's also would become, later on, the city of Jerusalem. This was the forerunner to the city, the king of David, the city of David, where the king would, would stand, where the king would reign. Melchizedek comes as a precursor, a foreshadowing to this. And Melchizedek comes, he's a king and he's also a priest. He was king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High. And he is the one who gives blessing to Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor or, or holder of heaven and earth. He is the creator. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He tells Abram, on the authority of God, it is God who has given this to you. Now, Abraham could have been tempted, and I probably would have been. Abraham had 318 skilled fighting men that came from his own household. Now, that takes a certain amount of wisdom and skill to cultivate that kind of personal army. Abraham was not a king of a city. This was his, and he was a wealthy man. This was his own private security detail. 318 strong, and they went and whipped the kings that had just beaten four kings. This is an elite group. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, man, look at what I have done. Abraham could have, just been, could have been just like Nebuchadnezzar would be one day, standing up on the wall of the city saying, look at all this that I have done. But Melchizedek comes and says, Abraham, you didn't do this. God has given this to you. This is not a virt- by virtue of your own skill, which is, which is legitimate. He had real skill, real logistics acumen, real military skill. But it wasn't because of that. God has given you this victory. God has provided this for you. And notice, God blesses, and then Abraham responds. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, as you look through the commentaries, you'll see most of them say, well, they gave him a tenth of the spoils. You know, he just conquered these kings, and he got all this this big heap of, of, of booty and spoil from this, and that's what he gave was a tenth of that. I don't think that's right, because Abraham had just said, I lifted my hand to God. I took a vow that I would not touch so much as a thread, not even a sandal strap of what I have captured, because I don't want anybody to say, the king of Sodom, that pagan, made me rich. Abraham gave of his own stores. He gave of his own goods. Listen to John Calvin. He says, In the age of Abram, tithes were a holy offering given as a pledge and proof of gratitude. It is, however, uncertain whether he offered the title of the spoils or of the goods which he possessed at home. But since it is improbable that he should have been liberal with other persons' goods and should have given a very tenth part of the prey, of which he had resolved not to touch even a thread, I rather conjecture that these tithes were taken out of his own property. I think John Calvin's exactly right. This was a personal sacrifice. 
Here he was, Abram's called upon by this messenger who had escaped, says, your nephew, Lot, and all of his possessions, his household had been kidnapped. Abraham, at his own expense, goes, rescues them. Having been delivered of that, knowing this is from the hand of God, Abram then responds as an act of worship and says, here's 10% of all that I have in response to God's grace to him. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abram's actions were motivated by faith in something that had not yet come. In Hebrews 11, in verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now ask yourself, what of us? See, Abraham had never seen this. He was told and he believed by faith that God would do this, that God would one day raise up a a Messiah, raise up an anointed one, raise up a redeemer from his own lineage. And Abraham acted in this way, worshiped in this way, gave such a tangible expression of his worship in this way based on faith alone. What of us? God has blessed us in his own son. The true and full expression of the priesthood and the kingship represented by Melchizedek is is fulfilled in Christ. Christ has come to us, and Christ has pronounced a blessing upon us. How do we respond? Abram was blessed by Melchizedek, but we have been blessed by the Christ foreshadowed by Melchizedek. God's gracious and generous dealing with us demands that we return to him a worship of tangible expression of our gratitude. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church uh, to, to give a, an offering. He's taking up, this was not a, a, a regular offering. This was a special offering. He's, he's encouraging them to take this up for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. Persecution had come fiercely upon the Jerusalem church. Many of them, because they professed faith in Christ, had lost their homes, their lands, their families, everything. And as he's looking to to take up this offering, in in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, he's talking primarily about the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi was was the the primary church in Macedonia. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Notice something very important here. Number one, they volunteered. They, in fact, they, they begged, can we, can we participate in this? And Paul said, I didn't even think to ask you guys because you're broke. You're poor. And especially relative to the church in Corinth, which is a pretty prosperous place. So they said, no, we want to participate in this. But notice what he says. Verse five, in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves 
didn't say they gave their funds. They gave themselves first to the Lord. The giving of their finances was an overflow of what they had already given to the Lord themselves, their whole hearts. Isn't that what our Lord Jesus commanded? This is the first commandment. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you think that includes those physical things that God has given to you as well? Of course it does. We cannot separate our money from our worship. How and what we give are a direct reflection of whether we have given ourselves fully to the Lord. So you can ask yourself, am I fully devoted to the Lord? If you're withholding those those physical goods that God has given to you, then the answer is no, I have not. That's what it means to give ourselves to the Lord. If you have to be prodded and prompted and urged to give, and that may say something substantial about your devotion to the Lord himself. The genuineness of our worship is, is rooted in what we believe about God, about his person, about his character, about his work. When you come before God in worship, what kind of God do you come before? As, and just in ordinary Sundays, you gather in this place, as you come before God, what are your thoughts about this God? Is he awesome and majestic and holy, holy, holy? Or is he common and ordinary and mundane? Is he clothed in splendor and majesty? Is he awesome to behold? Do you, do you believe that this is a God that's worthy of giving yourself? Romans chapter 12, Paul admonishes, the Roman church, he says, after, after spending 11 chapters laying out the, the eternal mystery and glory of the gospel revealed in time and space, he says, now, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your reasonable service to the Lord. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, God has not asked you, as some would teach falsely, to take a vow of poverty or to renounce worldly possessions or to neglect your financial obligations and certainly not to your family. 1 Timothy 5, for example, it's worse than an infidel if someone will not provide for their own family. But he has commanded us to give unto him worship that he is justly due. And that worship and giving can't be separated. From the very beginning, it was so. If we turn back to Genesis. Go ahead and put your, put your thumb or your finger in Genesis 4. We'll turn there in just a moment. Alistair Begg made this observation. This is, this is helpful, I think. He said, if we give grudgingly, then our approach is essentially, I have to. If we give dutifully, our approach is essentially, I need to. If we give thankfully, our approach is essentially, I want to. See, that's what we saw in the Corinthian church, or, or in, the, in the churches of Macedonia, isn't it? They begged us. Can we help? Can we participate in this? Alistair goes on to say, are you giving in response to God's grace? Is that why you give? Are you giving without external compulsion? Frankly, if anyone, your pastor or anyone else, has to prod and prompt to achieve this end, then forget it. God knows the needs. He knows the ends. Our giving must be a response to God's grace. God moves. God acts graciously towards Abram, and he responds with his treasure. Far more has God acted towards us in grace. So far more ought we to respond in like manner 
So we have a tangible offering of thanksgiving to God as a necessary part of our worship. There's a second thing we see in Genesis 14. We're also going to see it in Genesis chapter 4, and it's this. The duty of giving to God as an act of worship precedes the law of Moses. So there are sometimes people object as well. The idea of, of giving a certain portion of your income, whether you call it a tithe or a tenth, whatever you call that, 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 that that duty comes out of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law has been fulfilled in Christ, therefore it doesn't, it's not applicable anymore. What if it precedes the Mosaic law by more than 400 years? How does that change our thinking? See, Abram gives a tithe, he gives a tenth to Melchizedek. He gives it to the Lord by, through the Lord's authorized representative 400, more than 400 years before God gives the law to Moses at Sinai. Now we also see in Cain and Abel, look at chapter 4 of Genesis. This is immediately after the fall. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought in the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. So here, we have Cain and Abel bringing an offering to the Lord. Literally, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew reads there in verse Three, where ESV translates it in the course of time. It's really at the end of days is what it means. The, the Net Bible, I think, is more helpful at the designated time. And what's this designated time? It's the Sabbath. It's the one in seven that's part of creation. On the appointed day of worship, they brought their offerings to the Lord. One was accepted and one was not. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not. The firstborn did not have his offering accepted by the Lord. Why not? And some have said, well, because he brought vegetables and the other one brought meat. That's why. Well, that's not it. The clue is, is right there in the text. Cain was a worker of the ground, and he brings just an offering of the fruit of the ground. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. And depending how it's translated, it's, it's the, the firstborn and their fat portions, or probably more likely the firstborn and the fat ones. Abel's offering was accepted because he took the first and the best. The first and the best of all that he had and brought that as an act of worship, and he was accepted by the Lord. This was based on previous instructions the Lord had given through Adam and Adam to his sons. So the tithe or a tenth is not mentioned. There is another key principle that is established here, first and best. First and best is the principle. And here's the takeaway from these passages in Genesis. Tithing is not law in the sense that we are bound to Moses. Say that again. Tithing is not a law since we are not bound to Moses. However, since those ceremonial and judicial laws of Israel have been abrogated and fulfilled in Christ, we're not obligated 
as a matter of legal constraint. We don't look at the Jewish law and say, well, that applies to us in the same way. Because if we did, we'd have to look. That's where it gets complicated. And this is where I think some of our, our dispensational brothers have erred. And they've said, well, it gets really complicated because there's a 10%, there's another 10%, there's all these other taxes that had to do with the temple service, and that gets all thrown out because that's part of the Mosaic law. And it is true. The Mosaic law, the ceremonial parts of this, the judicial parts of this, and the tithe encompasses both of those, is abrogated. It's fulfilled in Christ. But there's something that precedes the law, something that's rooted in the created order, and it's a pattern. It's a pattern of returning 10% to the Lord in humble recognition that everything is his. All of it is his. In the Old Covenant, the tithe was a tax to support the Levitical priesthood, which had no allotment of land. You know, all the tribes got an allotment of land except the Levites, and they were utterly dependent upon the other tribes. And that 10% was a tax. It was part of the judicial side. It was a tax upon the people. We don't view the tithe as a tax. We don't view it in that way. But as we've seen, the pattern of godly men giving 10% of their goods was present even before this, long before this. It's a pattern that will still serve the people of God well as a point of reference. In fact, I'm convinced that speaking of, thinking of it in this way, thinking of returning a tenth of our income is, is a good place to start. It's a good place to start evaluating our, our own habits in this area. And I'll speak more about that particularly next week. But if the Old Covenant demanded offerings to God to demonstrate the gratitude of God's people for His covenant mercy, how much more? How much more should we demonstrate gratitude for receiving a far superior covenant of grace in the body and blood of Christ? This is also what the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 8. He says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. We have a better covenant. And we don't have to blush or, or, or make excuses for the scriptures to say we have a better covenant than Abram had. Abram's was a conditional. It had, had an unconditional aspect. I will give a seed. But there was a conditional aspect. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. Jeremiah 31, the Lord... The prophet said, I will make a covenant with you, a new covenant with you, not like the one I made with your fathers when I called them out of Egypt. I will write my word on your heart. I will give you hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. It's a better covenant, better promises. So we see the tie between tangible offerings of thanksgiving to God as a necessary part of worship and the duty of giving to God financially precedes the law. So we can't say that that's just been abrogated. We can't so easily dismiss that and say, well, that's, that's Old Covenant. It precedes the Old Covenant. But there's a, last, a final observation I want to make. Giving of our material things demonstrates our submission to God. If you turn back to chapter 14 of Genesis... Melchizedek blesses Abram and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator or possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram had already covenanted 
uh, to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that belongs to the Gentiles, to the pagans. Now, if we turn from there to Hebrews 7, I promised you I would give you inspired commentary. Here, here it is. Beginning in verse 1. Let's back, let's back up <clears throat> to verse 19 in chapter 6. Let's get a running start here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is, speaking of Melchizedek, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Salem means. The king of righteousness. That is, or by his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Salem means peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, he's, he's making a logical argument here. This is, this is one of the paragraphs that convinces me, by the way, that Paul's the author of Hebrews. This just has a kind of a Pauline logic to it, but that's neither here nor there today. That's free. But here's what's happening. The writer of Hebrews says the the reason this happened the way it happened. Here's, Here's Abraham. He's the patriarch. He's the recipient of the promises of God. And yet he gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And he then deduces from that, that means, because we know, It's beyond dispute that the superior doesn't give a tithe to the inferior. It's the inferior who gives a tithe to the superior. So he said that means that Abraham in this scenario was the inferior. Well, how? I mean, this is is shocking to the Jews, that that the father Abraham would be an inferior? Yes, because the one to whom he gave the tithe was a forerunner to the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, the king of glory the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And when we give 
generously and sacrificially to the Lord, we are testifying to the very same thing. We're reminding ourselves, we're testifying to one another that God has every right to rule over us, that we are the inferior. Do you need to be reminded of that? I do. I need to be reminded of that because my flesh wants to tell me something else, doesn't it? Maybe your, your mind may be different than mine, but my heart says you're in charge. You're the superior. You get to call the shots. All that you have is yours to do with as you want. And the Spirit of God testifies through the Word of God that says, no, you are an inferior. God is the superior. Christ is our Lord and King. So Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And according to the infallible interpretation in Hebrews 7, this signified Abraham's humility and submission to God. Abraham willingly said, even though he's the recipient of the promises, no one, in humanly speaking, was greater in God's covenant plan than Abraham was. And Abraham humbled himself and says, I'm but a man. Here's a tenth of what I have, testifying of his humility before God. It is beyond dispute that the inferior gives a tithe to the superior. Does your giving, saints, do your, does your giving reflect your unqualified belief that God is your superior? If Abram gave a tenth to the priest of God most high, Melchizedek, how much more should the people of God give to Jesus Christ, our great high priest? Abraham didn't even see the promises fulfilled, but believed and acted upon those promises anyway. What is our excuse? We who have already tasted those new covenant blessings. We've already received a redemption in Christ Jesus. We've been given a new heart, a new nature. We've been given precious and very great promises that surpassed even the promises given to Abraham. We have received what Abraham anticipated. Abraham longed for it. He looked for that Messiah who would come. We've already received him. Is not this Christ worthy of all of our worship, including sharing of our wealth? In Revelation chapter 5, we have this picture. We have this glimpse into the very throne room of heaven. As, God, as, as John is caught up in this vision, we have this glimpse into the very throne room of heaven. In verse 11 of Revelation 5, it says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we'll see next week when Jesus says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That includes the cattle on a thousand hills. That includes the earth and the fullness thereof that belongs to the Lord. So we have here, saints, in Genesis 14, we have a testimony to us that tangible offerings of thanksgiving, our worldly goods must be paired with our worship. That's part of the created order. We see this with Cain and Abel. We saw this with... with um, Abraham. We see it with Noah. This is part of the created order. Our worship, true worship, involves a physical, tangible expression. Not because that's what saves us. That's an expression of our gratitude for the blessing that we have received. There's nothing meritorious in our giving. Nothing at all. 
This is where Rome has erred, one of the ways Rome has erred so grossly is, is applying merit to the giving of alms and to the giving of offerings. Uh, and even worse, and we'll see this in our new members class today, the, the, the perverted task of, or the perverted practice of, of selling indulgences and things like that. Those are blasphemous. There is no merit whatsoever in what we give, and yet it is an expression, a tangible, physical expression of our gratitude to God. Secondly, the duty of giving to God financially precedes the law. So we can't argue simplistically that what's well, been done away with, that's part of the old covenant. That doesn't mean anything now. No, it precedes that by more than 400 years. And thirdly, giving of our material things demonstrates our submission to God. It's a very tangible way, not only to testify to other people, but every time we write a check, it's a tangible reminder to my soul that I need David, you are not in charge. This belongs to God. And it's also a reminder that everything that I don't give, I'm responsible to him for how I spend it. I will give an account for that because it's his. I am but a steward. I am but a manager. It doesn't belong to me at all. And so when we give, it's a tangible reminder to ourselves that God is in charge here, not me. These are his, these are his resources to be used for his glory and for my good as well. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is remarkable because just two verses earlier when, when Peter introduces his letter, he writes to, the, to those who've been scattered, aliens and pilgrims, people who've lost their homes, people who are traveling, and he says to them, you have an inheritance that's stored up for you in heaven. Well, that's good because I got no place to keep it with me on the road here. I don't even have a home. I don't have a bank vault. I have no place to keep this. Well, that's good because it's being kept for you in heaven where it's unperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. This inheritance is being stored up for you. And then Peter goes on to say a few verses later concerning this, this salvation, this salvation that you have already received, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, these prophets of old, including Abraham. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. There's a, there's a window into the, to the insight of those ancient prophets, ancient men of God, who searched and inquired, and they wondered. Do you think Abraham wondered? Even after he held Isaac in his arms for the first time, the promised one. He said, I wonder when the promised one will come. I wonder when, when the Redeemer will come from Isaac. I wonder what place, I wonder what time, I wonder what it would be like. And Peter said they all did this. They all looked carefully. They all examined the scriptures. They searched and inquired carefully. And Peter says, but now, 
you, all of us, we've seen him. He's been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. As the gospel has come to you and you heard and believed the gospel, Christ has come to you. Christ has pronounced an eternal blessing on you, far greater than the blessing Melchizedek pronounced. Beloved, this living hope has been revealed to us by God and His own Son. These things have now been announced to you through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. May the same Spirit spur us on to generous giving as a part of our worship of the triune God. That's the simple message today, ultimately, is returning to God a portion of our income is a necessary part of worship. And it represents a tangible expression of our belief that God is both our creator and the source of all good gifts. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. In the name of your Son, we, we pray that you will help us just to, to think carefully by your Spirit's work in us about your word, what it teaches us. Lord, will you help us to dispense with perhaps former bad teaching, uh, former misunderstandings that we have had of the scriptures, the wrestlings with our own flesh, and teach us humbly to submit ourselves to you in everything, to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that we have, to give ourselves to you, and a giving of ourselves, not to hold back anything that we have. Lord, will you be gracious to your people? Show us the enduring mercy of Christ. Show to us the precious promises that those who will confess their sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you cause us to hold fast to those precious promises of the gospel of your Son? And we ask it in his name. Amen.